Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. And thank you, Brother Porter, for uh, leading those songs. Um, you know, the uh, scripture says that uh, we need to make a, a joy, joyous melody in our hearts. And, uh, you know, the melody that we sing is, is a group melody. Um, it's a spiritual melody. Um, and as God has told us, Jesus has told us that the true worshipers of God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So we sing with our spirits. Um, our vocal cords are a manifestation of that melody, but some of, our, some of our vocal cords are on tune, some aren't. But if you sing with the Spirit, you're always right with God. Amen. It's always a joyous melody to God if you're singing uh, with your spirit. Uh, the title of my lesson this morning, um, as we begin the new year, is the end. The end. Um, the end is approaching, even though we just started the first uh, Lord's Day of 2020, but we know that the end is coming. Um, that isn't necessarily a bad thing if you're living righteously. That is not a bad thing if you're living righteously for God. If you're living uh, a life something other than that, then yes, the end, that phrase, I'm sure, uh, should bring about some uncomfortability, some trepidation, some worry, or anxiety. Um, the end means that it is finished. It is done. Um, whatever you had thought about uh, doing or whatever path you had begun, when you get to the end, that means that's it. There, aren't, there isn't a re-beginning or restart once you've gotten to the end. Um, the end, as we know it, um, you know, in, the, in a physical sense, is everybody is born and they begin their life. The end of their life is death. The only person that uh, that I know of that the Scripture speaks of that was able to re-begin was Jesus. It says that when he was when he died, he was buried in the ground. He was dead as a doornail. Rigor mortis had set in by then, um, but we can read from the scripture that he was resurrected from the dead on the third day. He re-began. But for all of us who are not Jesus, when we die, that is the end. Now, if I were to tell you this, tomorrow you are going to die. What would you do with the time that you have today? What would you do? Um, would you spend the rest of your the rest of your living life trying to get in as much enjoyment as you possibly could? Um, would you run out of this building right now, jump in your car, go to a bar, or go to a, a fine restaurant, or just keep driving east until you get to Las Vegas and spend the rest of your waking moments in a life of luxury and excess, or would you spend your time right now, if you knew tomorrow was going to be the end for you, would you immediately bow down, get down on both of your hands and knees and bow your head and ask God for forgiveness with the last fleeting moments of life that you have left? Amen. The end is a weighty phrase because, again, it, it, it brings about thoughts of finality and conclusion. And I want to start off by reading from um, the 
book of 1 Corinthians if you have a Bible. If you don't, um, somebody give up your Bible. <laughs> but uh, if you have a Bible this morning, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And <clears throat> before I even get to that, let's talk about... Uh, And just go over and turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 chapter. We'll, we'll get there. And I'm going to read from the book of Genesis. Um, and <clears throat> in uh, the book of Genesis, the third chapter, it says, <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse number 22, um, after Adam and, or after Eve and subsequently Adam had eaten of the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says, after that, or as a result of that, it said, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove him so he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Even in the very beginning um, there wasn't necessarily uh, God did not intend for his creation creation to end. Um, as long as they stayed in the Garden of Eden, everything that they needed, everything that they ever could have wanted was available to them freely. If you remember, God told Adam and Eve that they could eat freely of any tree in the Garden of Eden, even the tree of life. They couldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, you know what? Because they have that knowledge, it would be a hindrance to my plan that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and also ate of the knowledge of the tree, excuse me, not the knowledge, but the tree of life, they've been able to, number one, live forever and also know the difference between good and evil. See, the, 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 the principle here with the end is that now that we know good and evil, now that we know that we can do good things, and now that we know that we can do evil things, if we could live forever, what would keep us from doing good things all the time or keep us from doing bad things all the time? Think about it for a second. If you could live forever, would there be anybody in this building worshiping God? No. No. I, I would guarantee none of us would be in this building right now worshiping God. Because if we live forever, what, what would there, what would, and I'm sorry I'm tripping over my words this morning. I think it's the heater. I don't know. Okay. It, what would, the, what, where does God fit into the equation if we could live forever? And if we could live forever and God didn't fit in that equation, what would, what justification, what motivation, what incentive would there be for me 
as a man of the human flesh to live a life righteously for God. you got to think about it for a second. It says, <clears throat> the scripture tells us, and, I, and we'll take a look at this verse here in a few moments. But in the book of Romans, the 8th uh, the chapter, it says what? Those who live after the Spirit will mortify the deeds of the flesh. You know, in order for me to live a life serving God, I have to kill the desires of my flesh. But if I could live forever, would there be a necessity to do that? All of us would be in Las Vegas. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. We wouldn't even have to go very far because every city in town would be its own individual Las Vegas. And I only use the word, only use that town Las Vegas because, you know, that's the place where parties happen. I mean, all manner of sin and excess is legal in that town. What, what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas. They call it Sin City for a reason, but... I say that to say this, if mankind knew the devil and could live forever, there'd be no stoppings. There wouldn't be any need for, for God to send his son Jesus, because we could live forever. So it makes absolute sense. In Genesis, the third chapter, 22nd verse, uh, through the end of that chapter, that God said... I need to kick these people out. I need to exclude them from the garden. I need to guard the tree of life. Because if they eat of the tree of life, of eternal life, and they know good and evil, their flesh would prompt them to do evil every day, every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade, of every millennium, for all forever if they had access to the tree of life. How do I know this? Well, you can go and continue to read on in the book of Genesis. I think it's the very next chapter. And I, and I know I said you don't have to turn over there, but if you're so inclined to do so now, um, in <clears throat> Genesis, the sixth chapter, in verse number 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, how did man know good and evil? We all know good and evil. We have access or the ability to be aware of good and evil from that very beginning. When Eve and Adam partook of the, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Man left up to its own devices by Genesis chapter 6. It says that God looked down upon his creations and he saw that the thoughts and, and intents of man was evil continually. Now, if you were to layer on top of that that man can live forever, do you think man would ever stop thinking of evil things continually? No, they wouldn't. Why are you here in this building right now? Why are you a child of God? Why did you hear, believe, repent, confess, and go down that water grave of baptism? Because you know 
the difference between right and wrong. And you also know that the end is coming for you. That you will die. And as the scripture says, is accounted unto man to wants to die, and then what? After that, the judgment. You know that once you die, when the end comes for you, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And you will be judged based on those things you've done in your body, whether they be good or evil. But if you can live forever, there's no judgment, is there? And if there's no judgment, there's no hell. And if there's no hell, there's no recourse. There's no... There's no, there's nothing that would prompt you to live a life righteously for God. But there is an end. Because the end is coming. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> It says in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, the 15th chapter, starting at verse 12. It says, Now if Christ be preached, then he rose from the dead. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And here we have a, another kind of... <clears throat> Here, the scripture reinforces the importance of an end. If there is no end, then there can't be a resurrection. And if there isn't a resurrection, then Christ, therefore, couldn't have been risen from the dead. And again, I apologize for tripping over my words. But Paul says that uh, better than I could say it in any, uh, on any day of the week. He says, again... If there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no Christ that could have risen. And in verse 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. It goes on to say in verse number 15, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he raised, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. There has to be an end for there to be a re-beginning or a resurrection. It says in verse number 16, for if the, if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are not yet in your sins. That's an interesting uh, Fraser, and let's kind of unpack that for a few moments. In verse number 17, again, it says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. And we know what vain means. It, it means of no value. It has no purpose. Um, it's almost as if there is no difference between Christ rising from the dead or Christ not rising from the dead. It has no... Um, it has no long-term impact or no short-term impact for that matter. It's vain. If we don't believe that there was an end and Christ overcame that end by being resurrected from the dead by the power of God. It goes on to say in that, that 
after the semicolon there in, in verse number 17, ye are not, ye are yet in your sins. So we know what the end will what the end will bring. The end is the end of our lives, the finality of our existence on the physical side of on the physical side of, of life, a transition into the spiritual side. We know that if one dies in their sins, where are they going to spend all of their time? Well, the book of Jude tells us that there are two types of resurrections. There's a resurrection of life, and there's a resurrection to death. One is a resurrection to eternal life, and one is a resurrection to eternal damnation. What Paul is telling the church at Corinth here in verse number, uh, verse number 17 in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he's saying that if Christ has not rebegun after his ending, then there is no rebeginning for us who are dead to sin. If you have your Bibles, turn over to the 21st chapter, or excuse me, to the 21st verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Brother Martin the third, can you read, read there? Uh, what verse again, sorry? Verse 21. <clears throat> For since by man came death, and by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Continue reading. Um, for as Adam... For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Stop right there. So for as in Adam all will end, but in Christ shall all be made to rebegin. Go ahead. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, and he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Thank you, brother. So, <clears throat> what he's saying here, and just to unpack this just a few bit, uh, just a little bit, in verse number 23 it says, But every man in his own order, or every man that is going to re-begin, there is an order of things. It says, Christ the firstfruits after they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end. What other end will come? When he, shall when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So let's uh, let's go back to um, the book of John. If you have your Bibles, we'll be reading from John the seventeenth chapter. <clears throat> John, the 17th chapter, and we'll start reading from, let's say, verse number 9. 
This is Jesus' prayer to God on our behalf. Jesus says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was yet while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come unto thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. For I have given them my for I have given them thy word. And the world that hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. He goes on to say in verse number 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. You know, what God is, what Jesus is saying here is he's making a separation. He's saying that, you know, in the resurrection of the dead, from this world I've gone on to another. I'm no longer in this world, but all of us who are in this world, in this room, are a part of this world. So when Paul talks about this, this end in verse 24 of the 15th chapter, he's talking about the end of this world that we all exist in. Not the end of the world that Jesus and God are in, but this world that we are in. And he says that when it comes, he will deliver up the kingdom to God. And he will put down all rule and all authority and all power. The last enemy that must be destroyed is death, which is what? The end. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we'll start at verse number 31. And here's where I go. I talk about the end in a different context. There are those who look at the end as an opportunity to live it up for today. Because they feel that the end is the end of all things. Um, there are some people in this world who believe that after you die, you just blink from existence. You go into an everlasting dark. There is no afterlife. There is just a lack of life. In the 31st verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul addresses this by saying... I protest for your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Every single day, Paul has an end, and then a rebeginning the following. Here's what he means by that. In verse number 32, he says, After the manner of men, I have fought with beasts of Ephesus. What advantage is it me if the dead rise not? 
He, per, he, he references an Old Testament scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes, the second chapter in verse 24, where it says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that's really what the world thinks, is, yes, the end is coming, but while I have today, I'm going to eat and I'm going to drink. I'm going to enjoy life to its fullest. I'm going to fulfill my life with, with uh, pleasure and excess. If you go back and you look at the context in which it was written, this, this particular verse in the second chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find there that's, that's exactly what Solomon spent his life doing. He said, whatever my, whatever my heart desired, I gave it to myself. He said, if my heart desired food, I had a banquet. If my heart desired a woman, I had three of them. If my heart desired power, I took over large swatches of land. Because I'm Solomon. Whatever my heart intended to do, that's what I did. Because I was the wealthiest man on earth. Think about it. He said, I, if I wanted a house, I didn't just build a house, I built a mansion. I mean, if Solomon were living today and he wanted a brand new car, he didn't just get a car, he got a bunch of cars. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the, sultan, the sultans of the Middle East, mm -hmm. right? Whatever desires, they didn't just get that desire, they went to the nth degree. And if you read this verse, that's what some men did, that's what the beast at Ephesus believed in, which is, yes, tomorrow we're going to die, but all I have today, I'm going to eat and drink. In verse 33, it goes on to say, Paul says to the church at Corinth, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the glory of God, or the knowledge of God, excuse me. I speak this to your shame. And what is the knowledge of God? The knowledge of God is, is you know the difference between good and evil. You know what is a sin and what is not a sin. If you have any, <laughs> any confusion on that matter, go to, the, uh, go to 1 John. Any transgression of the commandments of God is sin. So if God says you need to love your neighbors as yourself, but you hate your brother, you're in sin. If the scripture tells us that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, and you worship God in any other form and fashion, then you're in sin. If the scripture says that we are to love God with all of our hearts, our minds, and our souls, and you love something before you love God, then you are in sin. Any transgression of the commandment of God is by definition a sin. And you know that. Because Eve and Adam, your, our, all of our forefathers, ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, but there's one fruit that they did not eat of. They did not eat of the tree of life. So each and every one of us in this room is destined to die. We will come to an end. 
And what Paul says is that he lived his life, or as he says in verse number one, 31, he says, I die daily. What does that mean, to die daily? What that means is, is that you need to live your life today as if you will die, not tomorrow, but today. Like right now. And because we have the knowledge of good and evil, because we do not live forever, because we know that it is accounted unto man to die, then after that the judgment. That dictates our actions. It dictates what we do. It dictates how we think and how we act. If you have our Bibles, let's go to the scripture reading uh, in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. Paul, um, to his letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says, now, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. We know that the day is coming. As a matter of fact, it says it is at hand. Yeah. What does it mean to buy? What does it mean by it is at hand? It means that it's right in front of us. I was reading a um, a post on the internet, and Sister Bill had brought it up while we were driving over here this morning about uh, uh, our president's attack or the killing of the Iranian. General, and there's a lot of people who are, and I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've seen this, but um, what was it? What government website is it? Um, I think it was the. I want to say it was like the Social Security website or some government website crashed. Because people think that World War III is coming because we went over there and killed one of the, the generals. So a lot of people are going on these websites figuring out, you know, if they can pull out their money from Social Security, you know, stack up their chips so they can go out and buy presumably a, a prepper kit, right, and, and build their underground bunker to shield them from nuclear fallout. I mean, you've, you've heard of all this stuff. And this stuff isn't new. For Jesus said back in the book of Matthew, that there are always going to be wars and rumors of wars, right? But it takes just one little act for people to fly off the handle. And they do that because of fear of the end. Think about all of these horror movies. Why do people like watching horror movies about people being killed? Where's the joy or the pleasure in that? Well, guess what? You get to experience the end without actually having the end come to you. It's psychological. Why aliens? Or why do people look to the stars and think about, you know, we need to get out there and colonize Mars? Why? What's wrong with this earth that God has, has, has made for us? I mean... He created everything in perfect harmony for humans. 
There is no atmosphere on Mars. There's no water. There's no vegetables. There's no animals. There's nothing over there in Mars that can fit human existence better than what we have here on Earth. But we're, we're striving to get to Mars. Why is that? Because we're afraid of the end. We know that this world is not going to last forever, so out of our fear, we're looking to go to another planet. We want extraterrestrials to exist. Why? Because we can have hope of living a life out there in the stars. Why didn't, why didn't all the people jump into the ark? They didn't believe. But why did Noah get into the ark? He believed. When God told him, I'm going to destroy every living thing, you know what Noah did? Noah's like, I believe you, God. And I'm afraid to die because I don't want the end to come to my life right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take me and the seven other souls into this ark, and I'm going to take a two of every kind and three of every kind. We're going to shut up the door. We're going to stay in this ark until you say it's okay for us to rebegin. The end is at hand. And it goes on to say, <clears throat> verse number three, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be, except there come a fallen away first, that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Interesting. Do you remember that phrase? We just got through reading that in the book of John. I'll go back and read that for you again. In John, the, uh, the 17th chapter. <clears throat> in Jesus' prayer to the Father on our behalf, in verse number 12, he says again, While I was with them in the world, I kept them, on the, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except for somebody. But the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This evil one. The one who is going to hearken the coming of the end. How do I know this? Even in 2 Thessalonians, even through the epistle that the Apostle wrote, Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he says, Don't let any man deceive you that the end is coming, but the end will not come except there being a fallen away first, that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. In verse number four, who opposeth and exalteth himself. Above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing, him, him, showing himself that he is God. Who is he describing? Well, let's take a look. Just remember those words. And let's take a look at the book of Revelation. Revelation, the 13th chapter. We'll 
We'll start reading at the 11th verse. It says in Revelation 13 and verse 11, And behold, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. <clears throat> and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And it says, <clears throat> go on, and we'll just continue to read. I don't want to leave anything out. And he that and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh far come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceived them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he did, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And this is uh, Revelation, the 13th chapter. We're in uh, verse number 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause them as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused all both small and great and rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Um, so who are we talking about here? Or who is Paul referencing, this son of perdition, this, uh, this, uh, this son, if you will, this, this man, this being, who will present himself as God, or equal to God, or somebody who should be worshipped as a God. He's talking about the second beast. So we know that the end is coming. Hold on one second. I just want to follow you. What is the second beast? The second beast is what we just read here. It's the this 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 beast that comes up out of the earth with two horns like a lamb. The first beast is what? If you if you go back and you look at uh, um, the beginning of Revelation chapter thirteen, and actually this probably isn't the the best verse to to actually describe that, but if you want to go to the book of Jude. <clears throat> Give me one second here. It's not the verse I wanted. to the book of Revelation. I didn't have this marked, but uh, we can certainly look at it. Um, Revelation chapter 20. And 
Brother Garner the third, can you read uh, one through four of Revelation chapter four? <clears throat> and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them which were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their right hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the first and second beast are... The devil and Satan. We know that the first beast is the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. We can go back and you can look at uh, 2 Corinthians where, where it talks about that in greater detail. Um, and for those who are jotting down notes, um, in 2 Corinthians, the uh, 11th chapter. So we know that uh, the 11th chapter, and you can read the uh, uh, verses 12 through 15. Um, talk about talk about that. But we all we also know that there is an antichrist. The antichrist is is actually here today. Where is that verse? Um, that verse can be found in First John. Uh, the second chapter. <clears throat> it says, uh, little children, it is, and this is First John, the second chapter, starting at verse number 18. First John, the second chapter, and verse number 18, it says, little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many, there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. For we went out, excuse me, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For they that had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have, not, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. And that's actually a rhetorical question. <coughs> Uh, so I'll read it as such. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whoso, whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. So we know that the, the end is here. Because the first beast exists today. The Antichrist. And it's not just 
there's not just one Antichrist. The scripture just tells us there are many Antichrists. And you'll say, well, how is that possible? How is that possible to have many Antichrists? Well, anybody who denies the Father and the Son is against Christ. You know, the, the Greek um, anti in Greek means against. So anybody who denies the Father and the Son is against Christ. And the first beast is against Christ. He is the epitome of against Christ or anti-Christ. So when we talk about the end or when Paul is referencing the end, he's saying, you know, you know what the end is. You'll know the end when the son of perdition is revealed. When the Antichrist is revealed. Those who are against Christ. If you look at what 1 John uh, says in uh, the second chapter, where did, they, where did the Antichrist come from? Verse number 19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out, that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. Go back and what it, what it talks about in 2 Corinthians about false prophets. Who are, who's the false prophet hoping to deceive? Who is the second beast hoping to deceive? All of us here in this room. <clears throat> False prophets are only, only effective where? In the body of Christ. Because they are trying to pull you away from God and from the Father. Well, we know God is the Father, but from the Father and from Jesus. That is the ultimate mission of the first and second beast, is to pull you away from the truth. So, I go back to the question I, I presented at the beginning of this lesson. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, or if you knew you were going to die at 11.59 p.m. tonight, what would you do differently about the way you're living, living today? Would you continue doing what you're doing, or would there be something that you change? And if you could change, what would it be? Because the end is coming. We already know the end is coming. We already have many antichrists that exist around us at all times. There are false prophets in the body of Christ today. Amen. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have talked about it. Hundreds of thousands of years ago. Oh, well, it's probably not hundreds of thousands, but <laughs> many moons ago. He would have he, he he had prophesied about that in Second Corinthians. As a matter of fact, he told us to beware of false prophets. We know that the end is coming. You know the difference between good and evil, but you don't live forever. 
None of us would. Don't be like what Paul, uh, Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, I'll let tomorrow be what it is, but while I have today, I'm just going to sit here and, and eat and drink and be merry. That's not what God intends for any one of us to do. And that's certainly not the example that Paul laid for us in the, in the phrase that he says, I die on a daily basis. Every day I go down to bed, I go down to bed with the confidence of knowing if I die right now, then a crown of life will be awaiting for me in the life thereafter. <clears throat> so do you die daily? If you don't, maybe we need to get into the practice of doing it. Concluding each day or thinking of each day as the end, as the final conclusion of the matter. <coughs> Think about how restful your sleep would be if you died daily. I've done everything I possibly could do for God. I've done everything I possibly could do for my husband, for my wife, for my children, for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've done it all. I've expended everything that I've got. I didn't save anything. I didn't hold anything back. I can go to bed in peace, knowing that I've done all and did all that I could for God and for the people that I love. The question isn't whether you're going to die tomorrow, because you are assuredly going to die tomorrow. But you could die today. So the lesson is yours this morning. It's a beautiful way to, I know it's kind of anticlimactic starting the new year off with a discussion about death. Um, but we're all blessed to see 2020. Amen. If you remember last Lord's Day, I was talking about, you know, just how time moves on. Um, I've got a 14, 15, and a 16-year-old. Um, you know, a couple years from now, they could have kids. I could be a granddaddy. I know Susan Marzell was like, no, that's not going to happen. I agree. <laughs> but it could. They could find, they could find uh, you know, a Christian, a Christian woman or a Christian man and get married and immediately after that have children. That could change tomorrow. You know, Things will change. Nothing ever stays the same. Yeah. Not on this side of life. The only thing that does not change is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and there is something in your life that has kept you, kept you from living a life for God, if you've been kind of just holding on to the fact that, well, I'm such and such a, an age, I've got 15 more years left, I'll get it right tomorrow. Or I'll start living right tomorrow. Maybe there's a fault that you have uh, difficulty with that you think, you know what, I'll apply myself to get over that fault tomorrow, but today I'm just going to eat and drink. Well, brother and sister Bill are almost in their 90s. Statistically, statistically, they live too long. Statistically, any moment could be it. Statistics tell me that. God hasn't God doesn't operate based off statistics. So if he is if he intends for brother and sister Bill to live to their 150, 
guess what? They're going to live to 150. And not a day longer or a day shorter. But statistically, any moment, literally when they go to bed at night, that could be it. And I don't mean to. Brother Bill's laughing at me. Thank you, my brother. But what I'm saying is, is that's the reality of the situation. You look at how they live their lives. Every day is a blessing. Every day is certainly a day that was not promised to them. But what if we could all live our lives that way? What if we all lived our lives in the context of we die daily? Every moment I go down, before I go to bed, I, I put my head on my pillow and you think, this could be the end. Is there something I could have said that I'm waiting until tomorrow to say? Is there something I could have done today that I'm going to wait till tomorrow to do? Is there somebody I could have said, I love you? Or somebody I could have given some solid words of advice to. You know, sometimes I think, well, I, I'll talk to my, my sisters and my mom and dad about the church. But if I'm dead, I've missed out on that opportunity. You know, my mom would always tell me, don't put off what you can do today until tomorrow. And there is certainly a scriptural basis to that saying. If there's something you can do today while you're alive, do it before the end. So you won't have an opportunity to restart. Certainly not on this side of life. So the lesson is yours again. If you're here this morning and there's sin on your heart, you can take, you can take <clears throat> I wouldn't say take care of that, but you can address that today. You can come to God in the spirit of repentance and ask Him for forgiveness. If you are not a member of the one true church. And I don't even like to say one true church because that implies that there's multiple churches, one is fake and one is real. There's really only one church Amen. that's spoken of in the scripture. Um, and thereby, any other bodies that call themselves the church are not the church. How do I know that there's only one church? Because Jesus said there's only one, there's only one way to get to the Father. He said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can get to the Father but through me. I'm speaking of Jesus. Well, what is Jesus? Where do you find Jesus? You can only find Jesus in the Gospel. You can only find Jesus in the Holy Bible. John, the first chapter, says that describes Jesus as the Word. And it says that the Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word. The Word, the word is Jesus. They are <coughs> the exact same. So the only way to get to God, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then, and if the Word and Jesus are the same, then the Word is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to get to the Father is through the Word. Well, what does His Word say? His Word said that He came to this earth 
not to not to um, condemn it, but to save it. And so what did he do? He gave his gospel to 12 men. And these 12 men in turn went out into the world spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first chapter of the book of Galatians tells us that if any man, woman, child, angel from heaven speak any other words than the words in the gospel, let him be accursed. You cannot pervert his word, otherwise it's accursed. Go back to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, where John, when he received the revelation from God, Jesus, or from God, Jesus told him, if any man take away from or add to the words of this prophecy, then all of the curses in the prophecy will be levied on that particular individual. That is how specific and how pure the word needs to be in order to lead someone to God. It can't be any derivation. It can't be any changing of it. The scripture tells us that one needs to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans, the, uh, the first chapter... Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul tells us in, in, latter, in latter chapters of the book of, uh, the book of Romans, is, how can somebody know unless they hear? And so how, come, how can somebody hear unless they be taught? And how can somebody taught? How can, how can somebody be taught if there isn't a preacher? So one has to hear the words of the gospel of Christ. Secondarily to that, one has to believe it. Because they have to, and what do they have to believe in? They have to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. The book of Hebrews tells us, or excuse me, the book of Ephesians the, uh, was it the third chapter? Fourth chapter, my apologies. Fourth chapter, starting at verse number four, it says, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord. And this is interesting. There is only one Lord. There is only one faith. There is only one baptism. It says, Just as there is only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, there is only one God. And Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. So if there is only one Lord, one faith, one body, one baptism, there is also only one church. If you have your Bibles, you can see that in the book of Colossians, the first chapter. And some are quicker at the draw than I am. Brother Garner, the third, you're better at flipping than I am. I don't have tabs in it, but the Colossians, the first chapter, I found it. And verse number 18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things he might have the preeminence. So we know that there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
There's only one body. There's only one church. Christ is the head of that one body, that one church. It says that we are brides of Christ, and any bride who is a bride to a husband also bears 